Jag vet inte hur många sällskaper jag har mött som sliter med att få in professionella investorer till trots för att produkten egentligen är ganska bra och sällskapet visar växt och goda tal. Vi ser en ting de proffsiga investorerna på utsikter i tillägg att du bygger ett bra sällskap självklart är hur du hanterar dina aktionärer eller ditt så kallade cap table som det heter på startupsk. Ett ödelagt cap table sätter rätt och slett en stopper för sällskapsutveckling. Unlisted.ai gör det möjligt för sällskaper att hantera aktie- och optionsprogrammer, aktieägarboken, cap table och det mesta av rättigheter in mot aktierna i sällskapet på ett sted. Pröv Unlisted.ai sin gratisversion idag. Welcome to Shifters Podcast. Today we have one of the most influential thought leaders within the fintech space, author of the best-selling books Digital Bank, ValueWeb, and now recently Digital Human. He's been an advisor to the White House, the World Bank, and the World Economic Forum, and he blogs at thefinancial.com. Uh, and I want to thank Nordic Finance Innovation for introduction. Welcome, Chris Skinner. Thank you. Nice so, to be on Shifters. Nice to be. Uh, nice to have you here. Uh, so, could you? Tell us shortly about yourself. What, uh, like, who are you, and what have you been doing the last few years? Sure. I mean, I've been working in financial services and technology all my life, uh, mainly for technology companies delivering uh, computers and software to the big banks and insurance companies. And in 2002, I was made redundant, which at the time was a bit of a shock um, in that I'm not the youngest of people. Um, but I started doing some hobbies whilst trying to find a proper job, and then my hobbies became my job. And my hobbies are drinking with people. So I run a networking group that uh, networks financial and technology people across Europe um, called the Financial Services Club that actually became Nordic Finance Innovation here in the Nordic region. Uh, and then the other thing I do is I talk and think and write a lot about the future of technology and finance and how that's changing society and the world. Uh, and as a result of doing that, that's what I do for a living now. I go around speaking around the world at conferences about the future of money and technology. So how does the future look like for money and technology? Well, it's changing dramatically, and that's what the three books you referenced, um, Digital Bank, uh, Digital Human, and Value Web, uh, delved into in depth. Um, and a lot of it's to do with fintech, as we to call it now, but uh, when I was growing up, it was finance and technology. Um, and it still is. It's uh, not changed. You know, banks are actually financial technology companies. They just haven't recognized the technology piece. And about 14 years ago, um, things dramatically changed because Technology became cheap and uh, unlimited um, through the cloud, and cloud-based services, along with uh, artificial intelligence and big data, have really changed the game. Along with mobile networking and apps and open banking and open APIs, and so all of these technologies were emerging in the mid of the last decade and. Um, because the banks didn't recognize the technology piece, an awful lot of the uh, s- companies that could see a vision of how it could work uh, created startups um, that became fintech unicorns like Stripe and Klarna. Um, and that's the space I've been working and writing in all my life. Um, but now it's cool. So how does it look now? So are the banks uh, at another level today than they were 15, 14 years ago? Yeah, I mean, we've been through what I call um, five cycles of change. We're currently in the fifth um, or just about to go into the fifth. Uh, the first is the banks really in shock from the financial crisis in 2008, not knowing what to do. And basically, they were like rabbits in the headlights. They did nothing with technology. They were much more concerned about their balance sheets and capital ratios. And it's interesting when you look at a lot of the startups in fintech that they were people who were uh, laid off in 2008. So a good example is the founder of Revolut who was working for Lehman's Bank in 2008, which was the one that everyone knows started the crash. Um, so the first cycle was um, building the opportunity. The second was the fintech startup saying, we're going to destroy the banks. Uh, we're going to disrupt. We're going to change. We're going to attack you. We're going to kill you. Um, and they, they never did because banks are quite big beasts that have a lot of protection from regulation and, and um, from lack of consumer uh, interest in moving their money from, to other providers. 
And so the third wave became the banks saying, you know what, these guys are doing some interesting stuff. Let's invest in them and see if we can work with them. And so there was lots of hackathons and innovation theater and things going on that created uh, banks looking at what fintechs could do, but not really working with them. And then the fourth phase um, was just in the last year, actually, which is much more everyone talking about collaboration, co-creation, partnership, and banks actually nurturing, mentoring, and investing and supporting and integrating fintech into their operations. Uh, And then the final phase, which we're just entering, and it may not be the final phase, but I think it leads to a final phase, is when you have what I call a hybrid bank, which is actually a bank that's reinvented itself with technology, working with startups, integrating their capabilities into their operations and giving those services to their customers. It's where a bank becomes what I call a curator of the best-in-class technology providers around the world in finance and deliver that and integrate that seamlessly to their customers. Interesting. And uh, you talk a lot about banks and startups and within the fintech space. Uh, but uh, one of the probably one of the drivers is that like you have the big uh, uh, platform uh, companies like Amazon, Google, Facebook, Apple that are entering the space. And they're not like tiny, small, cute startups that won't just want to disrupt. They actually can disrupt. Is that one of the main drivers for the banks to really actually get out of the innovation theater and start to collaborate right now? Um, it's certainly one of the big drivers in that uh, I often talk about tech fin as well as fintech and tech fin is the big tech companies getting into financial services of which um, everyone talks about gaffer google amazon facebook apple um, whereas i talk about fatbag which is facebook alibaba tencent badu amazon and google um, and the reason why the chinese internet giants are important is that um, for the last 20 years i think they've been doing a lot of copyright infringement of u.s patents uh, whereas now they've got their own patents and they're leapfrogging america completely and they're moving to another state where you know i'm pretty sure in the next decade china will dominate most of the technological innovations of the world and america will be following them um, which is a controversial statement but i believe that's what i'm seeing coming from china um and so when you look at the us you because of the um financial regulatory structure wouldn't see paypal being integrated and merged with facebook and amazon because the laws separate those structures um in a way that means that they don't come together amazon is moving into financial services paypal's moving into financial services but core deposit taking full service banking is something that I don't think they want to get into. And the reason is that the payments is at the core of commerce. The full-service deposit banking is is something that's far more regulatory overhead and structured and involves far more um, boring capabilities that technology providers don't really want to get into. It's a huge overhead of compliance. And so getting into full bank banking i don't see that happening with the us giants but in china they have moved into full service banking so alibaba um, has my bank and uh, tencent has we bank um, and what's happening in china is interesting because they now offer and alibaba in particular offers through ant financial services a complete marketplace of plug and play software that the big banks in china are taking and using uh, so the driver is very much technology change embracing innovation, managing risk. Um, but the biggest divider between an internet giant and a financial giant is the financial giant has to deal with about five times more regulation than an internet giant does. And right now we're seeing that start to change. So Facebook, with what's been going on with Cambridge Analytica and with um, Instagram, for example, uh, are starting to see the regulators waking up to the fact that social media can create social pressure. And so that will get regulated. But right now they deal with about 20% of the regulations that a bank deals with. Yeah, so um, so we should not fear, like if you're a bank, you should probably not fear uh, the American uh, internet giants as much as you should probably fear the the Asian ones or the, the, the Chinese ones. Is, is that what you're saying? Not, well, I don't think we should fear either. I think we should be watching and looking at what they're doing in depth and trying to see what that means to our own businesses. Um, you know, 20 years ago, everyone was predicting that Microsoft and Virgin would destroy banks. 
they didn't. <laughs> um, and in particular, with Google and Facebook, for example, the biggest um, advertising revenues that they get and therefore the profits that drive their business comes from the financial community. So why would you want to bite the hand that feeds you? you know, Amazon, Amazon is different. Alibaba is different. Um, and we need to look at those and say, what can we do to emulate those? So, for example, um, I've recently been talking to quite a few banks around digital transformation, what they're doing and how they're doing it. And one of the consistent things is that they're going to the Internet giants in Asia and in America, meeting with them, um, finding out how they run their technology operations and then trying to replicate and emulate and also integrate and understand how to internalize that capability to their own businesses. But do you think banks actually are capable of making that transition? Because you have a lot of people that are used to doing um, uh, banking a certain way, right? And then now there's a totally different way to do it, and it requires maybe some other type of skills. Yeah. Are, are they capable of actually transitioning to that and be uh, a player to be reckoned with? Uh, or, or like, um, or would you see both? Like, some will do it and some won't. Yeah, I mean, going to where we started talking about the five waves of, of fintech growth, um, starting from banks being rabbits in the headlights ten years ago to some banks being hybrid, um, integrated technology operators. Um, many banks are at one of those five phases. So quite a few are still actually doing nothing with fintech and technology and innovation and digital transformation. Um, in fact, there's probably about 30,000 banks around the world, and I can only name 10 that I think are actually doing digital transformation, um, which is you know, a minute number. And in Norwegian? Um, and in Norwegian of the, the, of the 10? Well, well the, the, sorry, I should say the 10 that I could name are the 10 that I think are large uh, multi-country bank operators are doing digital transformation. There's a, there's a lot within countries that are doing interesting things. Like uh, I reference quite a few in my books, M Bank in Poland being a prime example. A lot of the banks in Turkey are doing amazing things. Uh, several banks across the Nordic region are doing good things. Um, but when it comes to a large traditional financial provider in a multi-country regional operation doing digital transformation. I can only name um, a maximum 10. Okay, and these are 10 good companies that are actually managing the digital transition well, according to you? Yeah, or, or I, I, I mean, I'm working on my new project, which is um, a book that's going to focus on doing digital and which companies are doing digital well. Because uh, a lot of people say banks are useless, they're stupid, they're not doing innovation, they don't understand technology. And I, I, I kind of reject that in terms of, I don't think they're stupid. You know, they have good people. Obviously, yeah. Yeah. Um, and they have good technology people. I think the problem is that their leadership often lets them down because they don't take digital transformation seriously. Uh, they understand compliance, regulation, rules, um, capital ratios, you name it, but they don't understand digital. And so the five banks that I'm actually interviewing for the new book are ones that actually have leaders who really have understood and internalized digital into their operations and have transformed their operations. And some are well-known like DBS in Singapore or BBVA in Spain. Um, but others um, maybe are less known like China Merchants Bank um, and JP Morgan Chase. Okay, so my, my point is, um, my point is, um, um, uh, we, we're, we're seeing this trend that uh, you have big uh, or giants, uh, giant technology companies that are entering the fields and wiping out the competition, right? So, and they tend to be like you, there tend to be a room for the, the really big ones that can do innovation and digital transformation at scale and the smaller boutique ones that are uh, providing like special type of treatment for niche niche uh, audiences, right? Um, and so my, my concern is, will there be room for the middle, in, in this space, like all, like the majority of banks, uh, won't they be either attacked from, from, um, uh, below or from above? Well, again, um, there's always that pressure. Um, and that's always been there for the whole of my career that the mid tier banks, um, are too small to be, um, fighting with the big guys, but too big to be fighting with the boutique guys. Um, and they're not very nimble in many cases, but so, so, some are, and that's, that's, that's an opportunity. I mean, there's always been a view that consolidation of banks should happen. 
And it has been happening, but not very quickly. You know, I mean, I said there's about 30,000 banks around the world. Probably 20 years ago, there was 50,000. So 20,000 have been merged or consolidated. There's still a long way to go. Um, and I think we will end up with um, a top sort of like the fat bag gaffer acronym that I've given of banks that are global um platforms of financial operations, integrating huge partnerships uh, of many different providers of technology services into those platforms and operations. And then we'll see, as you say, a lot of boutiques. And then we'll have um, people like um, Nordia and SEB and others um, who I'm not saying are going to be squeezed out, but I think that there will be consolidation over time. Yeah. So, uh, so, so <laughs> banks can't stand still, even if, even if they're actually making a lot of money today and they're, uh, they're, there's nothing wrong with their business model today. Uh, but, uh, they need to be on uh, their toes to, to be able to transition into the, the future. Right. Yeah. But that's actually the core issue of banking overall is that, um, they don't have a burning platform for change. No. You know, they get good bonuses. They're making good profits. Their customers don't leave. Um, and all they need to do really is work out how to grow. And normally they grow through acquisitive merger and consolidation. Um, there's not much organic growth in banking. Um, and th- that is a issue because it, it means that they can quite easily say, well, I don't need to change my core systems because it's not a burning platform because I'm making good money here. Um, I don't need to invest in new technology and innovation because my competitors aren't doing it and I don't see it being important at this, at this stage. Um, the problem with that attitude is that it will take about five years to change the bank at least. And in five years, an awful lot can happen. If 10 years ago, um, the iPhone appeared and people thought it was rubbish because BlackBerry and Nokia thought that you know, it won't work. It doesn't have a keyboard. Uh, they regret that decision. Um, 10 years from now, banks aren't changing fast enough because they don't have a burning platform right now. May find that by the time they get to change, they've been eaten up. Yeah. Do you, I don't know if you know Richard Suskind. Oh, no, no, no. Yeah. So he's, um, he's a law professor, a British one. Uh, he wrote the book, The End of Lawyers. Uh, and, um, and, uh, he said something that I found very funny and interesting. He said it, and that's talking about, um, the law industry. And he said that it's, it's hard to, uh, convince a bunch of millionaires in a room that their business model is wrong. It is. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> right? Yeah. 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 And but, but then when those millionaires become sort of, um, you know, in the job center, um, they'll realize what the mistake they made. I mean, one of the amazing things right now is, and this is what Digital Human focused upon, is the opportunity for everybody to become an entrepreneur through technology. And my favorite example is Vijay Shakashama, who's the um, founder of Paytm in India. Uh, and he's now one of India's youngest multi-billionaires. He's worth about $10 billion. Uh, but 10 years ago, he was homeless. Um, he'd been bankrupted by what were his friends, he thought. And he um, actually says himself that he had to take a decision as to whether to go to a job interview on a bus and not have lunch or walk to the job interview and have lunch. You know, because that's how squeezed he was. He was sofa surfing, and yet he's now a billionaire. So we're, we're seeing a fundamental shift, and the shift is from the industrial era companies that had those billionaires um, of that era to the new digital era companies that are, are replacing them. And if you see that opportunity as an industrial era company or an industrial era bank to become digital, then you can keep up with these changes. If you don't seize it soon enough, then you'll become destitute. Yeah, so this a lot of people have been saying this the last few years, and you mentioned the the the, the term innovation theater. Uh, I believe that we still see a lot of that today, um, and nothing real is happening. Um, and 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 there's something about the mindset. So I just wanted to um, uh, talk about one thing here. That's a little bit local thing here in Norway, but it used to be a local thing in in the UK. And and we had a big debate on Apple Pay. So uh, I, I guess you're familiar with Wips, mm-hmm. which is like the Norwegian uh, Swish <laughs> or uh, or um, uh, payment system that everyone uses, and they now also own the uh, the the, pay, the the payment system, the infrastructure, because they've merged. And uh, the the owners of the, uh, Wips is the majority of the banks in Norway. Um, and but the, these owners, these banks, they won't let Apple Pay or the customers use Apple Pay, right? And um, is that is that customer centric, or, or what, what do you think? You can probably imagine why they're doing it, but is this does this this uh, reveal something about their mindset uh, into like cooperating going to the future, or is it the smart thing to do? Um, 
I mean, certainly I'm familiar with, with, with VIPs and um, what some of the history is here. And I think what was interesting is that because VIPs was around as Apple Pay was emerging before it got here, then you kind of go, why do I need it? Um, whereas, for example, in the UK, we had a thing called Zap, which did, no one was using. Um, as to Apple Pay appears, and there wasn't anything else. And so it made sense that people would start using Apple Pay in the UK. Um, I think what's more intriguing for me, and this occurred during one of the um, Nordic Finance Innovation meetings, NFI meetings, is um, I spent the time with Alipay and Ant Financial in China, where everything is QR code-based payments. And in fact, that's the same technology behind Paytm in India, which is QR code payments. And so as a merchant, um, I could be a street hawker selling peanuts and newspapers. And all I need is a piece of paper with a QR code on it, and I can take money. That's as simple as it gets. Um, but what's interesting is that they came to Finland with a partner called Epazi. Uh, and Epazi presented at our meeting that uh, within six months of meeting Ali Alipay, they had it live up and running and operational in Lapland for Father Christmas and the Chinese tourists. Um, and then it's, it's a long story, but the long story short is that the next day after that meeting, talking about Alipay and um, Father Christmas, I had a meeting with um, Vips, but also with um, Swish, Sirtu and MobilePay, which is the other Nordic wallets. And it struck me, it seemed really weird that I can travel 6,000 kilometers from Beijing to Helsinki and use the same mobile app as a Chinese tourist. And I can use that app across all the Nordic region. And yet I can't use VIPs in Denmark or Sweden or Finland um, because there's no interoperability. And so why wouldn't I put a QR code based payment system and a wallet across the whole of Europe, particularly the Nordic region and wipe out VIPs? Um, and that question did come up, and now it's interesting because there's now a discussion around interoperability between the four mobile wallets. It still doesn't go back to why won't they let Apple Pay in? And the answer is, do you need Apple Pay if you have these existing services? And d- d- is, is the consumer demanding it? And, and how much demand is there for it? Because you know, if you look at Australia, for example, Australian banks have resisted Apple Pay coming into the Australian uh, economy, but there wasn't something good enough there before, and so eventually their resistance crumbled. But should it be up to the bank to decide that? Shouldn't shouldn't they just uh, give the customer what it wants? Well, I mean, it should be up to the customer. Yeah. Um, and if Norwegians were demanding Apple Pay that much, then I think you'd have Apple Pay. So what ha- what happened is that Nordea, which is not a part of Ips and uh, and Dansk uh, Bank, no, not Dansk Bank uh, first. Uh, Nordea, they actually and S Banken, which is part of Ips, uh, they provided uh, Apple Pay uh, possibility for the customers, and they got a lot of new customers coming over there. But I, I'm I'm not saying that uh, that is the rationale for. Um, um, deciding whether to have um, Apple Pay in your bank or not, but shouldn't it be? Shouldn't you just provide the options that are available for your customers? Isn't that well? Like- that's what is the cultural change that banks are finding very difficult to make. So, I keep going back to the future bank is this hybrid technology financial structure where the a bank provider is a platform curating a marketplace of partnerships, of services from fintech and big tech that gives consumers choice and, and corporates. Don't, don't forget the big commercial um, you know, part, uh, customers that banks have out there. Um, but the banks to do that have to become a collaborative partnering culture. And right now they're not, they're a control freak. Uh, and they have historically controlled everything that the customer gets. And the customers actually felt that's good because they feel secure whereas that's falling apart very quickly not the secure aspect that you'd be as secure as ever but the control freak non-collaborative non-partnering structure is gone that's an industrial era culture and the regulators are forcing that change with open apis psd2 open banking and saying you guys can no longer be control freaks you've got to open up yeah uh yeah and uh, to uh, vips defense they actually made this cooperation with the uh uh, Alipay. Now, if I understand correctly, you you were part of that. Uh, so, um, uh, so um, it's not that like they're not cooperating. I don't, I don't want to say that. Uh, but um, let's talk a little bit about open banking and PSD two and stuff like that. Uh, so, do you? So, how do you like envision what what does the future bank look like for the consumer? What what does it look like? Well. Again, it's a controversial debate because a lot of people are saying, oh, bank branches are closing. What's going to happen? What, what about the old people? You know, of course, it's always the old people who want to go into a branch and have a chat for the day. Um, not quite. Um, 
the, the banks are reinventing their business models on the fly and a lot of people make the um, metaphor comparison to you're in a 747 above a 40,000 feet and you're changing the engines while in mid-flight. That's what banks are trying to do. Um, they're closing branches and reinventing what the branch exists for because in a digital structure, why do you need a physical access? Uh, some people do want it and a lot of the financial um practitioners say that people want it for advice uh i I would challenge that but i i would say it's really for marketing um because if you can physically see where your money is even though the money is digital you feel far more secure than if it's just on a website or an app um and that's the real difference if there's a physical place you can go and say give me my money excuse me um but you know you want to rattle someone's cage then that's gives you a security blanket you don't have if you purely have an app um, the future bank structure, therefore, will say everything is digital. And you start with everything being digital as the core of the bank. Uh, you build the bank based on a front office of apps that are connected through the Internet of Things to your devices, not just your phone, with a middle office of APIs, application program interfaces, plug-and-play software that's curated from thousands of partners that provide all the functionality you need to give to those apps in the Internet of Things. With a back office, it's all about analytics and all about the data and, and intelligence about your data and your life, your financial data and your financial life, that provides a contextual personalized service to your apps in that front office Internet of Things. So once you understand it's all about apps, APIs, and analytics and building a digital core structure and a platform that's completely open to partnering and no longer being a control freak, you can then say, and at the end of that, what physical access is needed to that digital core structure uh, and why? And you know what people are needed to provide that digital core structure and that personalized interface to your apps? And why do those people need to be there? So you can actually argue that uh, if you're a boutique hotel, you could actually have have like you could do like a physical thing that where you can meet the, like if if that br- brings value to your your certain segment of customers, that could be your business, right? Well, that's what community banks in America are all about. I mean, and that's what that, that's what they're focusing on in, in this digital age, where they're saying we don't really th- see that we can compete with the big guys, uh, Wells Fargo's and Citibanks. So what we're going to do is we're going to do everything about the local community, the local town where we exist, and the services that we give to the town. Yeah, and and that's that's a perfect for perfectly viable viable, uh, yeah. viable yeah. yeah but uh, what they're also doing is they're then saying but the people in the town also want to have the uh, city and the town and the community-based services online and through their apps as yeah. well as in our stores yeah so they could actually be a part of this digital structure with, absolutely. The, with the physical outlet right absolutely uh, but um uh, you're you're talking about some sort of platform like a bank being the platform with the APIs and uh, um, connecting uh, services to other operators, not only banks, but other players as well. Uh, but do, don't we tend to go towards a platform with network effects? So it, there will be like one or few big players, uh, instead of like having multiple, uh, platform because every, every bank wants to be the platform, right? Yeah. Or, or, or do you envision a, envision a scenario where, where there actually are different platforms and, and, but, and why would that happen? The main reason why there may be more platforms than the um, Google, Amazon, Facebook, Alibaba, Tencent um, in the tech world. In the financial world, it is different. You know, when you're dealing with money through technology, it's very different um, than dealing with technology with money. Uh, and it may sound like a fine nuance, and it is, but the main difference is that if um, Facebook sell my data to a partner that I don't ha- have any awareness of, so my privacy is violated, then do I really care? Um, you know, I might do, but to be honest, the stuff I put on Facebook, I, I, I don't care who sees it. Um, whereas if they saw my bank balance and could take money out of my bank and uh, take money out, out of my account, I've got a problem with that. Yeah, um, money is far more important than a selfie. Um, so that's the difference. And the difference then comes in saying, what's the, the security structure around the data that is now money on those platforms? And what will happen is um, we, we will see a few platforms that are global, which I referenced, and it may be JP Morgan Chase and Alibaba. Um, throughout financial. So it may be some of the big tech giants are those platforms. But then the provider of the security to you that's regulated to manage your account to make sure your money is never violated, now your money is data, may still come from Nordea, who may use those platforms. They may use stuff from JP Morgan Chase and, and 
from Alipay to make sure you get the best service. But they secure that service. But aren't, uh, isn't this the biggest fear among the banks to become just infrastructure? Uh, to an extent, but you know, infrastructure is important. I mean, if you don't get electricity, then what are you going to do? You know, so it's important. If you don't get financial infrastructure to deliver your services, what are you can do? The, it, it does come down to did it just become dumb pipes, which is what everyone always says about uh, you know, banks just become these dumb pipe infrastructures in the back end, and no one bothers about their brand anymore. Um, but actually, I call them smart pipes, and I think their brand are, it, it is important. And the reason it's important is going back to it's my money. It's one of those, it's the second most important thing in my life behind sex. And basically, if it's that important to my life, I want to make sure that it's um, secure and that if I want to go and bang on someone's door and say, give me my money, that they are there. Yeah. It's like uh, Intel inside, right? Or Yeah. yeah. yeah so, so you have like the the brand, you have, uh, yeah, you, you borrow I mean, the trust of the Nordea brand. Well, I mean, take um, Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies, Ethereum and everything else that's been going on in the crypto space and the big – um, you know, boom of 2017 and the big bust of 2018. Uh, oh, where's my big going on? Um, you know, there's just a headline yesterday of uh, one of the biggest Canadian exchanges for cryptocurrencies founders has died in India, and he's the only guy who's got the password to access all of the 110 million pounds, 190 million US, uh, Canadian dollars of funds. So everyone's just lost all their money. You know, if you live in a wild west where something's not regulated or one guy has the password, that's ridiculous. You know, and that's the problem with money without government, money without security. Are you invested in a bit in uh, cryptocurrency? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But having said that, it's quite funny because I'm with one of the regulated exchanges and they're so secure that I can't access my accounts. I keep forgetting what the hell the passwords are. <laughs> okay. So um, one thing I've been thinking about um, is uh, can you envision like a future where you have where you have brands that are not banks, right? But you have, you have today you have big brands in all kinds of fields in, in, in our society. For example, uh, there's a brand called Patagonia, which is a clothing brand. Uh, they're all about uh, saving the future or, or saving the planet, right? Um, and they have, uh, they have a lot of loyal followers. Could they be like the interface of a bank? Like because they do because technology is cheap and you have all these service provider could could they put up something together uh, like create as like a social uh, uh, social what do you call it, conscious type of brand and build a bank behind it because the technology is actually cheap cheap and available. Yeah, I mean, I think what we end up with is a multi-layered structure uh, of many different services that are integrated into frictionless apps that allow us to live our lives far more easier. Uh, and a good example is, um, you know, you, you may use Uber or My Taxi or Airbnb, um, but none of those would exist without Google Maps and Stripe. Uh, you don't know that Google Maps and Stripe are in there. And in fact, most people wouldn't know what the hell Stripe or Klarna was because they know, you know, that they're not using Stripe and Klarna. That what they're doing is they're buying something and they see the retailer and their credit card. But behind it are these incredibly powerful services that are big brands, but they're big B2B brands rather than B2C brands. And I think the rise of an awful lot of B2B infrastructure brands is going to be interesting in the next decade because we're going through this digital tra transformation where most of the brands of the industrial era were visible to consumers because they had big offices and they distributed everything and retailed everything and you could see their names. There's going to be an awful lot of names that no one's going to see anymore except for businesses. Yeah, and that was actually my point. Uh, isn't, there, is it, isn't it easier for a, for an uh, for a brand that's not invested in banking today to to build a service on top of these api services well that's what's happening that's what the fintech unicorns are doing yes exactly isn't isn't that easier than the, than the, than uh, uh, an incumbent bank actually trying to transition into being one of those players well i think you have both happening because the traditional industrial banks are trying to become innovative digital banks and very few get it because their leadership are not getting the right internalization of that message. And that's why there's so few that I can name that are really doing it. Um, there's a lot of startups that have become unicorns, uh, like the Monzos and Starlings and, um, you know, the Squares. Um, the, the, there's m many out there now that are doing amazing things, um, because they've taken a, a very narrow service and made a very clever, piece of technology to deliver that service such as i keep mentioning stripe and Klarna because i think they're great examples of you know a really easy way frictionless way to build online checkout for a customer without the customer ever knowing who they are um and that's where i think 
you end up with a bank having to say, why are we doing this development of something that's already out there? Um, you know, for example, you, uh, you and McLeod, who's quite well known from Nordea as their chief digital guy, uh, went through five things that he's learned dealing with fintech. And one of them was that, um, the bank's got to get out of this idea that they have to build everything themselves. So they had a meeting where, you know, all the people are saying, Oh, Alexa's pretty cool, isn't it? You can just go, Hey, Alexa, um, p- 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 give me a loan. And Amazon will sort you out alone. We have to do something like this. And so you said, Okay, I'll go and talk to Amazon. He said, No, 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 we don't want to talk to Amazon. We, we need to build Alexa. <laughs> what, can't we just use Alexa? No, we have to build our own Alexa. You know, we have to build our own Siri. That, and that goes back to that control freak culture. You have to get out of that and say, okay, if there's something cool out there, how can we just partner with them, use that, leverage that? Yeah, pro- probably something to do with the culture of being secure, right? Yeah, and yeah. then they need to have control of every piece of the puzzle to be, be able to, to provide that's a secure what service. Open Banking PSD2 breaks into to say, you know, you're, you're, you're account details are as secure as ever because an awful lot of information and data that's going to third parties is completely anonymized. So it doesn't say who you are and what your account details are. It just says, here's data that customers are um, you know, spending. Um, can you analyze it and do anything with it? I mean, one of the best examples I've seen of that is with BBV- BBVA, who have been running an open API challenge for many years. But one year, the winner was a, a developer who took customer data about spending patterns uh, in real time in Barcelona and Madrid and would advise tourists as to where the best places are to go based on the fact that the point of sales are not as busy as they are in somewhere else. So if you, if you, if you want to go and see the Picasso Museum, it says, well, I wouldn't go right now because 10.30 in the morning, it's really packed. Um, I'd suggest you go to the shopping centre, or which you mentioned you wanted to, to visit because it's quite quiet and go and see the Picasso Museum this afternoon. Yeah, so it makes it like an op- optimal traffic flow. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, for a city. Um, that's uh, that's interesting, um, but um, uh, let's uh, talk a little bit about uh, PSD two, which has uh, been um, like a major uh, topic and also a trend. Uh, I, I imagine in, for entire Europe, but we're speaking a lot of it in, about it in Norway. Uh, does does it have the impact that it is intended to have, as you see it? No, no. And why why not? I mean, the, the, the regulators brought in Payment Services Directive second, which is PSD2. Um, and one of the key parts of that is that banks have to open up payments data to trusted third parties. And a trusted third party has to ha- get a light license to be trusted. Um, and but by being trusted, it means that they won't corrupt or um, sell or um, you, you hack your data. Um, they're going to use your data to give you better services. And the better services would be um, that within Facebook Messenger, you could pay your friends. Um, within uh, uh, any online checkout, you didn't need to give your credit card. You could link it directly into your bank account rather than using a debit card or credit card uh, and seamlessly um, and easily. Uh, but what happened is that got bastardized by the banks in particular during that process into becoming not seamless and not easy at all. Um, and a lot of that's to do with the fact that to permission a third party to access your bank data, uh, every bank is given, are given a different layer structure of doing that. And therefore, customers have to go through quite a rigorous process to make it happen. Um, and again, it goes back to the discussion we're having about if the customers demanded it and wanted it, why aren't the banks giving it to them? Or equally, if it's good for the customer, why doesn't the bank do that proactively rather than trying to resist it? And it's the control freak secure nature of banks going back to what we're discussing in, you know, throughout this discussion. You know, the banks feel accessing customer data will make the customer less secure. So what was interesting is open banking launched a year ago in Britain, which is actually wider than just payments, but it took PSD2 and gold placed it and made it wider than just um, your payments. It's your investments, your savings, any data. Uh, and the day that was implemented, all the media in Britain said, um, your banks are about to make it easy to get your money because they're opening up your data to people that you've no idea who they're opening up to. But that was actually what the regulator wanted. So on the one hand, why would a regulator want to make you insecure and less secure with regulation? That's ridiculous. What they're trying to do is to create more competition and more uh, services to customers around their money. And over time, I think it will happen, but it may take PSD3 or PSD4 to make it happen. Yeah, but we're, we're already talking about PSD3 being... <laughs> really? Um, yeah, yeah. And uh, as a regulation that will force third parties to give banks data. Because right right now, the banks are being forced to give third parties data. Why shouldn't the third parties give banks data back? And then banks could create the services themselves. That's a good point. It's hard to argue, but again, that is it. 
Yeah. Or, or do you have any arguments against that? No, because it goes back to right now, and um, I've actually got the numbers from Bank of America Merrill Lynch in the, in the US. The average US bank deals with 127,000 regulations. The average US technology company deals with 27,000. You know, and when you're dealing with five times more regulations, it's all about securing your money. You know, it goes back to uh, losing a selfie is not nearly as important as losing 10,000 euro. So will will that ever be simplified, or or will it always will the finance sector always be heavy, heavily regulated? Well, it's the friction of moving into the digital century um, and this digital revolution that we're going to. And it's clearly a revolution. Again, Digital Human talks about that in depth. Um, but there's a really good book that I just picked up actually called A Hundred Year Life. And the average person born in the last decade is going to live for 100 years. Uh, whereas 50 years ago, the average person would live for 65, 70 years. Uh, what happens when you've got an extra 35 years of life, an extra third of life? You know, what does that do to savings and retirement and jobs and wealth? fair and structures um and we haven't dealt with these questions yet you know and we know there's all sorts of issues bubbling up like the big pensions hole around the world because the pensions regulations haven't been um refreshed to recognize longevity and governments and regulators are well behind the mark on digital change but they're catching up and it's the same with all the industrial era companies and institutions whether it be banks manufacturers retailers you name it they're all being fundamentally challenged by this digital revolution and the ones who have just started as the babies in the digital age are the ones that we're talking about the amazons and the alibabas who have taken these opportunities because they were born in the internet i want to i, I want to speak a little bit more about china uh, because a lot of people fear china because china is not is not is not known for being uh, uh, the best in class when it concerns human rights for example mm-hmm. um you think america's better uh, at the moment, uh, probably not. <laughs> uh, but but still, um, there you know um, at, at least we're in a part of uh, you know in a NATO with Amer- there's there's another type of relation, another type of trust in that relationship, right? Um, uh, do you think we have something to fear if uh, Chinese uh, f- financial uh, tech giants are becoming uh, powerful here in here in Europe? Uh, it's, it's a question that could take up a whole other podcast, to be honest, um, because we're seeing this um, superpower shift between US and China. Uh, and that's the reason why Trump's created the trade war with China, because uh, they recognize that China is no longer dependent on US for knowledge and um, business, but they're actually driving the agenda for the um, for the future. Uh, and equally with 1.4 billion people, they've got a lot more resources than 360 million people in the US. Uh, and the US to me rep- at the moment represents what I call the industrial superpower and China is the digital superpower. And that transition's a tough one. Um, can US refresh itself to be a digital superpower? Uh, will China with its human abuse rights records, um, be viewed that it shouldn't be the next digital superpower, even though it's already pretty much there. Uh, I'd say a couple of things. One is that the reason a lot of us don't trust Chinese is that we don't speak Chinese. So we trust our media's reporting of what China's doing, and we're shocked by it because of the way it's reported in our media. Uh, whereas our media, because they speak, um, most of us, English as a first or second language, trust America because America speaks a version of English as their main language. Um, and so we trust Apple, Amazon, Facebook, and we don't trust Alibaba, Tencent, Badu. And yet we now know that we can't trust Facebook. Um, and can you really trust U.S. large corporate companies? Can you trust Chinese large corporate companies? But what's your position on this? Do you trust, uh, you trust, like, to make it very simplistic, do you trust the U.S. and the Chinese that's just the same, or do you have any preferences? Um, I'd say that I'm finding China much more interesting um, from a future viewpoint than America, uh, mainly because I think China's creating things for the digital age. I mean, a great example is I was in Shenzhen recently with China Merchants Bank. Uh, it's the home of Tencent. And when you look at Shenzhen, um, 20 years ago, th- no, f- 40 years ago, 
it was a fishing village with about 300,000 people, yet today it's got 22 million people. And it's massive skyscrapers everywhere. And I see the same in almost every Chinese city. But, but China is not a democracy. Can, can you trust uh, a non-democracy? Yeah, but you, you know, we say we can trust America as a democracy, and yet you see you know, um, any, anyone of color being abused in America. Yeah, but at least you have opposition there. You, you have people speaking up. You, you don't have that in China, do you? Uh, I'm, I would say there's a lot of suppressed um, lack of freedom of speech in America. I mean, by way of example, I've worked for American companies most of my life when I had pr a proper job. And political correctness went mental to the point where you couldn't actually speak freely. But you have to agree that there's more democracy in, in the United States than in China, right? I think that there's more open ability in the US because it is a democracy than in China but I think China's actually you can actually say what you want working, you're done you're censored yeah but you've got to recognize that China's working out a new form of politics that's no longer communism it's actually capitalism in a communistic form it's a new form of commerce and is that good well it's a political discussion between what's good left or right you take your own decision I'm in the middle Uh, okay, but um, I mean... I like the fact that China's but, moving but, from but, being far left to less left. I don't like the fact that America's moving from being right to far right. But are, don't you like have a moral moral uh, preference towards democracy than dictatorship? Well, I don't agree with dictatorship. But China's from some for, a form of dictatorship. No, it isn't. Okay, so what is it? It's a form of Chino... Um, culture which is moving towards a less far left communistic capability to become a more capitalistic com country. Okay. So do do you envision a society here in the West where you're jailed for your opinions? Well, that does happen. You know, <laughs> it, but but not like in China, is it? It's not like in China, but there are places, um, both US and Europe, where if you express certain views, you can get jailed. Okay. I mean, a, a, a guy just got jailed in um, Dubai for wearing a Qatar T-shirt. Okay, and you could yeah. say, "Well, that's Middle East," um, but you know. Yeah, but we're talking about the West versus China, like so. I, I don't that, think it is versus. Like, you know, I would like to think that with technology, we okay. we, we will see borders eroded and, and become global. I I agree with you on the technology part. I agree with you on uh, the progress part of China. They're really making uh, uh, things happen. And, and this is going to be a and, and, technology debate rather than political debate because I don't get into politics. No, 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 yeah. no, no, no. Sorry, but that's partly because they also have the the, the um, so uh, they're, they're well. Want, let's just step back. Yeah. If, if you're looking at the future, yeah, you look at the forces of change, which are Political, economic, social, and technological. Yeah. The political and economic, you can never forecast. No one would have thought Britain would vote for Brexit. No one would have thought America would have voted for Trump. No one would have thought that China would have opened up you know, 50 years ago. Um, when I was growing up, you know, the idea of being able to go to China with a two-year multi-visit visa was ridiculous. Um, and Jack Ma never thought that he could break out of China and create a global company. Uh, and eventually he did get out of China. And there's a long story behind how that happened. And he invented the idea of Alibaba because he could see what was happening in America. Um, as that goes more global, great. But politically and economically, I have no idea where we're going. Are we globalizing or are we localizing? Yeah, we were globalizing. What's happening today? I have no idea. But from a technological viewpoint, I can always predict the future because technology is fairly intuitively obvious. And all you have to do is watch Star Trek to work out where it's coming from. Yeah, but Star Trek is pretty optimistic. Have it's a pretty, have it, like it's a, a world, utopian uh, vision. Yes, uh, but, I, but uh, is it possible to also fare the opposite? Well, you can well, Star Wars. <laughs> exactly, and 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 where do you think we're heading? I'd like to go for Star Trek. It's much more optimistic. Okay, so do you think that Chinese form of ruling is in in line aligned? With I think what's going to happen Star with Trek? China. So, for all of its faults, um, let's go back to what's the, what are they trying to achieve? Which is um, global growth, not just within China, but using global resources to help China become a superpower through global growth. If you travel across. So many regions, particularly across the African nations, that were underinvested and viewed as just being poor countries by the West. China's invested in those countries. The infrastructure and leapfrogging through technology that you're seeing in Kenya, Nigeria, and in Botswana and Ghana is incredible. And it's Chinese funded. The Belt and Road policy is bringing nations that were languishing with zero investment from the West into the 21st century. Yeah. That has to be a good thing. 
Yes, you can you can argue it's a good thing, but uh, the motive is not uh, being a nice country, right? They they see an opportunity. Yeah, like the motive that will be subservient to the US dollar. No, no, yeah, but but they're seeing a big opportunity in investing in in underdeveloped countries. So, but uh, but still, I I believe it's I believe it's a good thing. Like the end result, a good thing. Not it's not necessarily done because you have good intentions, but I, I believe it's a good thing. But uh, enough politics. <laughs> uh, the, the last thing you, you you said you were writing about um, you were writing a new, new book called Doing Digital, and uh, where you have studied the five biggest banks and uh, that are actually doing digital the right way as you see it. What are the key takeaways uh, you see that they're doing that are right? Um, there's there's a number. I mean, I'm early in the process but i've already got 15 different key things that these banks are doing that we would all if we had did these 15 things we'd be doing digital transformation i guess i can summarize those 15 things in a few short statements which is that they uh are are creating fintech banks that think like big tech um so fintech uh, is basically no longer separating the financial operations from the technology operations they are fully integrated if you go around the structure of the, 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 the these um banks then they have developers designers analysts coders all sitting alongside auditors regulators um and risk people and uh, accounting people so they don't separate the teams they're integrated teams uh, that bring tech to the fin uh, and make sure they work together. Uh, And then they think like big tech. So they created microservices structures of small two pizza style teams that can innovate and do things very quickly and turn around things very quickly without having to go through all the caveats and controls of the cascading waterfall monolith structure of old. Um, And in, in particular, they've been driven from a leadership that's gone through the whole organization walking the walk not just talking the talk but that leadership doesn't have the mandate or ability to do that without the ceo and the chair actually being instrumental in making that happen so every single one the chairperson has been instrumental in getting the board on board and protecting this transformation process from shareholder scrutiny or critique because you are going to see a five to ten year program where the banks may be not performing against the same metrics or focus uh, as their peers you know shareholder return is not the primary focus digital transformation is the primary focus you have to have the, ch- the board to protect the ceo and the leadership team to do that but then the chief executive has to be able to go around their team and change the structure where they need to to get it right and make sure that everybody's on board and one of the big things is that they all bring everybody on board they don't leave anyone behind so nearly every bank isn't laying off large volumes of people because they don't get digital um but they're trying to bring them all along in the process um and therefore communication fast clear communication is key they don't have rigorous meetings and structures they have fast meetings and fast communication um so there's lots of other things and layers in there but it's quite interesting that all of them are consistent um so of the ones I've met so far, four out, four out of the five, all the messages I've just given are across all of those banks consistently coming through. Chris Skinner, it has been a true pleasure to talk to you. You're clearly one of the most interesting thought leaders within this fintech space. And I wish you good luck with your new book and your coming book. Thank you very much. And thank you to Nordic Finance Innovation for the introduction. And yeah, good luck. And happy Chinese New Year. And happy Chinese New Year.